This is a Federal News Network podcast. The head-scratcher guidance from the White House last week purported to help agencies plan for people to return to federal offices. That included both federal employees and contractors. And for how contractors are reacting, we turn to the executive vice president for policy at the Professional Services Council, Stephanie Costro. Stephanie, good to have you back. Thanks so much for having me back. You really have to read that guidance over and over again to understand what it's saying. And it's basically saying anything goes if you submit enough plans to us. That's talking to federal agencies. How do contractors interpret what they're supposed to do? We're talking about a memo on integrating planning for a safe increased return of federal employees and contractors. It's a 20-page memo that came out of OMB, OPM, and GSA in the alphabet soup that is the U.S. government. And basically, it lays out requirements for agencies to submit plans for reentry, both for federal workers and for contractors. But it really focuses on federal workers, the civil servants, vice contractors. The only place it raises contractors in any meaningful way is to say that that you can't require them necessarily to have vaccinations to be on site, and it does lift the 25% occupancy limit on most federal buildings. But that said, it really focuses on the civil servants and less on contractors, and that's an area that we, as the Professional Services Council, would like to see additional detail. Yeah, I guess the question becomes, who is it that says contractor personnel can return because situations vary so much. In some cases, the contractor employees outnumber federal employees in some locations. 100%. You know, there are about 2.1 million civil servants out there, and you have about 4 million federal contractors. Now, not all of them work on site at federal buildings and facilities, but that said, the fact that this memo raises them in terms of vaccination and occupancy, but not in terms of flexible telework, agility, you know, flexibility and agility come up several times in this 20-page memo, but not as it relates to contractors. And as we've seen in the past, in many cases, the U.S. government has policies for civil servants writ large, but then goes contract by contract. So it's really difficult for businesses to plan for that when it comes down to what is required of their workers. Do you recommend then that contractors talk with the contracting officer or with the highest executive that happens to be at that particular location or or whom? What we're recommending would be that contractors talk to the contracting officer regarding how this will this memo will apply to their contract. This memo does go into um, timelines and, and that is where the federal agencies need to submit their reentry plans um, as soon as late this week um, with a schedule that's due in July 9th and a final plan with a schedule that's due July 19th. That said, um, it does give some flexibility to meet collective bargaining. So that obviously brings up labor unions, but it doesn't talk about adjusting contracts. And so if contractors want to see how this memo will be applied to them, they should talk to their contracting officers. All right. Well, that's good advice, I guess, at least if you know who to ask, maybe you have a chance of getting the answer. (laughs) Well, hopefully you look at the bottom of your contract and see who it is that you need to talk to. Right. And that's not all that's going on. There is the spring regulatory plan release of the Biden-Harris administration's unified agenda for rulemaking. And this is a sharp departure from the rulemaking procedures and standards of the Trump administration, which again had reversed what the Obama administration had done and on and on ad nauseum into the distant past. Maybe James Monroe had something to say about it. But uh, what, uh, what do contractors see ahead there and what should you do? You're, you're right. It is a bit of a seesaw. The um, the Biden-Harris administration really is taking their unified um, regulatory agenda very seriously. 
for your listeners, it, it's, a, it's an agenda that comes out twice annually. This is the spring version, and it contains more than 2,500 items that the Biden-Harris administration wants to pursue. Uh, and it really aligns with the, the administration's stated priorities for Build Back Better. It's equity, it's economic recovery, it's climate, it's a lot of health issues and equi- equitable access to health. And so as our contractors are looking at this, they're sort of wondering, you know, what does it mean in terms of contract requirements? Where are they going to be going in terms of, um, you know, opportunities? It really becomes clear you know, with such a closely balanced and misaligned Congress, a lot of things won't get pushed through in legislation. And it really becomes clear that the administration is going to use regulatory tools to achieve much of their agenda. And for contractors, that means they need to monitor the, these things very carefully, comment on them within the comment period, and use associations like the Professional Services Council to be a voice for them as this process moves forward. Yes, because the agencies themselves, if things go according to how the Biden administration would like them to go, will have a lot more people and a lot more clout and probably a lot more discretion in the range of rulemaking they feel they can embark on. Yeah, agencies have a greater voice in the rulemaking process, certainly than they do in legislation. And so when they're using this particular tool through the rulemaking, whether it's an interim rule or a proposed rule or a final rule, uh, they do have a greater voice. I will say that um, for, for small businesses out there, one of the set of regulations that would be integral to them is the Small Business Administration is, is developing plans to advance regulations that can ease requirements to refinance debt and expand other loan programs. So for the small businesses out there, there's, there's definitely a, a need to, to delve deeper into this agenda and find out what might benefit them as they move forward. Yeah, it's always good to get rid of debt when interest rates are on the on the rise and inflation is on the rise. <laughs> We're speaking with Stephanie Castro, Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. And I wanted to ask you also about the Supply Chain Disruptions Task Force that is coming up. This seems to be focused a lot on manufacturing. And your members are, are generally not manufacturers, but they use manufactured goods sometimes in the fulfillment of their services contracts. They do. And and so the supply chain um, issue became the subject of an executive order early on in the Biden-Harris administration. And in that executive order, they asked for 100-day reviews. So four day reviews that took 100 days, not 100-day reviews. Um, and, it, and it focused on areas of manufacturing, semiconductors, um, rare earths, elements, that kind of thing. That 100-day review period is over, and so this disruptors task force is one of the results of that. It is to look at supply chain um, issues going forward and how they can address vulnerabilities. That impacts service contractors because if you're talking cyber or if you're talking financial services or something along those lines, it really is making sure that every link in your supply chain is as invulnerable as it can be. Um, And so I'll be watching this task force very closely. Um, And in fact, we have a supply chain issue coming up um, in terms of a topic at our annual federal acquisition conference, which will be happening um, next week. And so hopefully that will be an issue that we talk there. Yes, because some of the larger services firms are in an effective sense, if not in the way their businesses are legally chartered, but they are resellers for certain manufacturers. They use them over and over again to host the systems that they design. And so they're going to have – your members, those services companies, are going to have to be mindful of what's in the chips and what's in the boards and what's in the black boxes that they have delivered for agencies. That's exactly right. And also we have a, a, several members who – do aircraft maintenance, and they're going to have to wonder where their parts are coming from. So it's not just sort of what's internal to their company systems, but also 
you know, the, the supplies that they're um, acquiring and then using for maintenance and sustainment of aircraft, for example, or, or tanks or that kind of thing, um, it is going to be a critical issue for them. So it's really not a, just about manufacturing. It's about the services side, too. And we'd like um, the administration to keep their eye on that ball as well. And interestingly, there was a gambit on just Friday, big tech regulation. They're talking about possibly breaking up Apple, breaking up Facebook, separating supply chains and marketplaces from owners and so forth. A lot of different proposals out there. Does any of that mean anything in our world? From the services contractors world, this means a lot. As you were alluding to, there was a big push on Capitol Hill this past Friday, June 11th, where Many bills were introduced, several bills, in order to break up what they termed to be monopolies of, of companies, um, large tech companies that are sort of household names. Now, a lot of that is about the consumer world, but it does impact the services the government can acquire through services contracts. And so, you know, you've got folks out there in big tech saying, you know, this kind of legislation could, quote unquote, kneecap them vis-a-vis competitors on the international marketplace. But from a government perspective and and services contracts, we really have to look carefully at the implications of this legislation. Because there are so many bills, I imagine we will see something pass either the House or the Senate. Um, And so we will be parsing out the, the specific language to make sure that it doesn't adversely impact not only our services contractors, but the services they can provide to the government customer. Sure. There's a cloud of cicadas going on out there, and you don't know which one's going to bang off your forehead in all of this. <laughs> there is that. And, uh, but, of course, the cicadas will go dormant for 17 years, and I don't believe Congress will. So this is an issue that we're going to be facing over no, not yeah, a six-week period, but a six-month period or so. Although a 17-year hiatus for Congress is something worth considering, maybe. <laughs> Stephanie, Co- I will not comment on that. <laughs> Stephanie Castro is exactly Executive Vice President for Policy at the Professional Services Council. We'll hope you'll come back within 17 years. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome, and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is to sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the I- I- empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented a terribly difficult challenge. 
One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those, on others uh, across our community. So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there've been so many moments saying, I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a rural school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president Black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president White. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to, to fight for change. And that was, that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And, but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call equality of opportunity initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality... Did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I had, I had just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision uh, despite the challenges, is seeing a forest despite the trees, is seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that, that attribute, I think, is one that, that I embody. I mean, I, I, I'm very optimistic uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I, I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic. And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give to feds looking to develop leadership skills? And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of of being a leader, uh, and 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 I, I I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants, and I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the. Secretary of Commerce, and I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Shane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the Secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work. I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but, but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's 
Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.